So for those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, we do welcome you this morning and turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Just because he is the forgiver, not because we are forgivable. That's because of grace. And we talked a great deal about grace this morning in our uh, Sunday school uh, class. And you can never be, uh, we can never mention or experience grace uh, to its fullness in this life. We will understand it as we move forward. So, once we have forgiveness of sins, there is something else that needs to be done. And that is bringing satisfaction to God. God must be satisfied. In 1965, the Rolling Stones recorded a song entitled, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And for years, it's been voted uh, in the top 10 of all the rock and roll songs uh, in the past 60 or 70 years. And in that particular song, Mick Jagger sang, when I'm driving in my car and that man comes on the radio and he's telling me more and more about some useless information that's supposed to fire my imagination, I can't get no, 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 no satisfaction. That pretty much sums up the world, does it not? So the question how is God satisfied? And the question for you and I is, are we satisfied? Let's look here at Galatians chapter 3. And I want to read uh, from verse 10 down through verse 14. And we're going to be about the book of Galatians this morning and pick it up again next Sunday morning as well. Verse 10, for as many as are are of the works of the law are under its curse, the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not a faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that he, that we rather, might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And you remember that we've also gone to Matthew chapter 1, and we've read verse 21, where they, there the angel tells Joseph, And you will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So we've looked at forgiveness. Now we're going to look at satisfaction. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have again to be in your house on this the Lord's day. We thank you for the Advent season. We are reminded of what it cost you to become incarnate, something that you will never forfeit in eternity. And we praise you for that great truth. Teach us how you are satisfied this morning and how we are to be satisfied in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First slide, if you would, Brother Jeff. <clears throat> so we're going to look at satisfaction for sins. And God willing, we should finish this this morning. We've looked at forgiveness of sins, and we understand, we covered four main elements of that. We understand the gravity of our sin. Sinners need to understand how grave their sin is, how serious their sin is. Secondly, our moral and spiritual responsibility to claim and to understand that we're sinners and ask for forgiveness of those sins. And then thirdly, our changing the false guilt that most of us have because we tend to blame everyone else for our sins and even God for our sins rather than 
fall on our knees before him and admit the true guilt that we all have. We are the ones that are guilty, and we are the ones that are at fault. And then finally, we talked last Sunday morning about gaslighting or making uh, light of God's holy wrath. And that leads us to ask the question then, again, why the cradle and the cross? Now, I just quoted from the Rolling Stones song many years ago, but also in 1965, a man by the name of Alistair Hardy, who was a theologian, wrote this. He wrote a book entitled The Divine Flame, and he asked whether Jesus himself would be a Christian if he were alive today. And he said, I feel certain that he would not have preached to us a God who would be appeased by the cruel sacrifice of a tortured body. I cannot accept either the hypothesis that the appalling death of Jesus Christ was a sacrifice in the eyes of God for the sins of the world, or that God, in the shape of his Son, tortured himself for our redemption. Now, we may find this appalling, but I would dare say that the majority of folks in this world think this way. So, interesting that you had a, a semi-poet in Mick Jagger sing that song, and then you have a man that was uh, apparently schooled in theology, although I would question some of that. And he writes about this, of course, that uh, he can accept the cruelty of the cross. And we see that, and we'll see it as we go through these verses here in Galatians this morning. Now, here's the thing. Both of these individuals, Jagger and Hardy, mistake their opinion for biblical teaching on the cross. And there are many times when we promote our opinion over and above any truth, whether it's biblical truth or scientific truth or whatever, we promote our opinion. We don't look at facts. Now, neither the word satisfaction, in fact, we'll see that later on this morning, or substitution are bi biblical words. In other words, there's, even though they are mentioned, there's not a, a, uh, uh, a concrete doctrine that's built around them. They are part and parcel of the doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. But neither is the word Trinity found in the Bible. But we know from study of the Bible that God is one who exists in three distinct personalities, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know that. That you can't be Christian and deny the Trinity. So remember that. But it means the concepts are readily and historically taught. So keep that in mind as we go through and look at satisfaction this morning. Next slide, if you would. Now, the way we understand Scripture, and you have to, we have to glean these things from Scripture. We have to be taught them. We're, there's no, God doesn't unzip our, the top of our heads and pour this. We have to learn them, just as we learn trades or we're educated. We must be educated in this fashion. The scripture teaches that Jesus offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, an oblation, which is just simply another word for bloody sacrifice, and, sac and a satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. And we find that all the way back in the book of Genesis, and it's carried all the way through the book of Revelation. So we talked over the past couple of weeks about the forgiveness of sins. In order for our sins to be forgiven, there are certain obstacles that must be removed. Some say that the devil demanded satisfaction for our sins. There are others that say the law of God required satisfaction for our sins. And then there are those that say God's honor and his justice were on display and had been uh, besmirched, if you please, had been, uh, had been dirtied. And so that needed to be satisfied. 
Well, I want to look at these over these uh, next few minutes. And this is what we're going to focus on this morning. The primary obstacle is neither the devil nor the law of God or God's honor or justice. And there are reasons for this. The primary obstacle is with God himself. God must be satisfied in the way of salvation that he devises. One of the reasons for the revelation of the word of God is to teach us that salvation is in no other name but Jesus Christ. We'll talk about the name of God next Sunday morning. And the name of God, his, his desire to promote his name is key to our salvation. He cannot save us by contradicting himself. And I would remind you yet again, those of you perhaps that are watching and listening, there is no contradiction either in the Word of God or in the person of God. Any contradiction resides here in sinful, material minds. So let's look at the first one, Satan. Does Satan need to be satisfied. Well, it is true that since the fall, mankind has been in captivity to our own sin and our guilt, and in certain cases, we are also in captivity to the originator of sin and guilt, Satan. But Satan does not make us sin. Satan tempts us. This is another example of false guilt. Well, Satan made me do it. No, he didn't. Satan may have tempted you. His minions may have tempted you, but you did it. There's a responsibility that we have. Satan's power is real. Now, again, folks make, a lot, make light of that now, have for centuries as far as that's concerned. But his power is real. And yes, Christ did secure at the cross our liberation because he decisively defeated Satan and his minions. And this is found a number of places in Scripture. We saw this when we looked at the book of Jude here a couple of years ago. But the Scripture never teaches that God is obligated to anyone, and that includes the devil. So there is no obligation that God, that, and we, I've heard it said in, in, in many cases, uh, read books where it says that Satan has the title deed of earth and Jesus needed to take it back. That's not found here. It's not found in the scripture. So again, our opinions don't outweigh the truth of God. He is the prince of the power of the air that works now in the hearts of the children of disobedience, of which we all were, until those of us that were born again came to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But God is never obligated to anyone save himself. No one even Satan, has any rights over us which God is obliged to satisfy. This is from the pen of John Stott. No one. So there's no, there's no conversation or what's the word I'm looking for? No contract that exists between the triune God and the devil and his demons. The defeat of Satan was decisive in the garden. It was made a reality at the cross. And it will be finalized at the second coming. So as intelligent a supernatural being as Satan is, as Lucifer is, he is yet still a created fallen angel. 
And he is the one that needs to ask for God's satisfaction, which he'll never do. So, Satan, we can pretty much kick that to the curb, if you please. But there is something that is even more perilous than Satan, and that is the law of God. Now, we don't think of it that way, but here's the thing. In 1 John 3, we read this a couple of weeks ago, there John writes, sin is lawlessness. It's chaos. Sin causes chaos. Think about sin in your own life. Sin is the disruptor of the creation of God. It is not the disruptor of redemption of God, but it is the disruptor of the creation. Now, the Bible tells us, we learned this in the book of Romans, that the law of God can't be broken. It can't be segregated, and it can't be disregarded. It cannot be ignored with impunity. In other words, if we want to break it, or we want to disregard it, or we want to ignore it, there are consequences that follow. Sinners, because of the law of God, and we'll see that as we move through Galatians here in just a moment, incur the penalty of breaking God's law. And that penalty for the wages of sin is what? Death. How do we know what sin is? Because of the law of God. So how then can God's law be satisfied? Now the Bible teaches us, and it is true, that God loves sinners, and he longs to save us. We'll see that as we go through 2 Peter. But again, God is not obliged to be motivated by you and I. We can't motivate God. He gave Moses his law, one of the covenants, which, when violated, justly condemns us. And it's not just the Ten Commandments. There are well over 600 laws in the Old Testament, not just the Ten Commandments. So Paul would say when we break one law, we're guilty of them all. And the law justly condemns us. Now, we've read verses 10 through 14. Drop back to verse 1 of chapter 3. And there Paul says, O foolish Galatians. Now, he's writing to a church. O foolish Galatians. Actually, church is, plural. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly betrayed among you as crucified? This only I want you to learn from uh, to, to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you not now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And then in verse 10, he says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Now, what's the curse? What is he talking about here? Well, in this, over these few verses here, Paul uses the word curse or cursed, cursed, five times. Katara is the word. And it means an insult or an alienation from God that is caused by breaking by disregarding or ignoring his law. And we ignore them. The law was given on God's terms. It is a reflection of his character. And in verse 10, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 27. So I want us to turn back there because this is important. Deuteronomy chapter 27.
All right. Look at verse 11. I'm not going to read this entire thing because we need to go into uh, chapter 28 as well. And Moses commanded the people on the same day, saying, These shall stand on Mount Gerizim. Now, this is just a few days before Moses is killed by God. You'll stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, and when you have crossed over the Jordan, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin, and these shall stand on Mount Ebal to curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. The Levites shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the works of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. And so Moses gives these instructions about the cursings that's going to take place. Now look at verse 25. Cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person, and all the people shall say amen. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the works of the law. And all the people shall say amen. Now let's look at verse 20, chapter 28. Now Moses defines the cursing, and then he also defines the blessing. Verse 1, Now it shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments which I command you this day, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then he lists them, okay? Uh, look at uh, verse 8, The Lord will command the blessing of you in your storehouses, and in all which you set your hand, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving him, the Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his way, then all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. Verse 14, so you shall not turn aside from any of the words which I command you this day to the right or the left to go after other gods to serve them. But, he says, it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes which I command you this day, that all these curses will come upon you. And overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bread. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed you shall be when you go out. And the Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke in all that you set your hand to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. Look at verse 23. And your, and your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze and the earth which is under you shall be iron. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust. From the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated by your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air and beasts of the earth, and no one shall frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with the balls of Egypt. Verse 30, you shall betroth the wife, but another man shall lie with her. You'll build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You'll plant a vineyard, you'll not gather its grapes. Your ox will be slaughtered before your eyes, you'll not eat of it. Your donkey shall be violently taken from you, shall not be restored. Your sons, your daughters shall be given to another people. Your eyes shall look and fail for longing for them all the day long. There shall not be any strength in your hand. A nation whom you do not know. 
Assyria and Babylon, which didn't exist when God gave this, these uh, commands. We'll eat of the fruit of your land and the produce of your labor, and you'll be oppressed and crushed continually. So you shall be driven mad because of the sight which your eyes see. The Lord will strike you in the knees on the legs with severe boils. The Lord will bring you and the king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. You shall serve other gods, wood and stone. You shall become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all the nations where the Lord will drive you. That's the curse. And Paul quotes this in Galatians 3. Now, this is what occurs on earth. And we know the history of the Israeli people. Unfortunately, this did take place. Early for the ten tribes, as they were captured by the Assyrians, and then for Ephraim and Judah and Benjamin, as they were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. So this came true. Now, when you read all of this, you get this idea. Well, let me, let me read this, too. Some of you may be familiar with Richard Dawkins. He's, uh, <clears throat> he's a scientist and also an atheist. He's written a number of books. I've read a number of them. And in one of those books, he, he writes, uh, the title of that book is called The God Delusion, and he writes this. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. He's jealous and he's proud of it. He's a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, felicicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochist, a capriciously malevolent, Bully, I think I can say that word. And so when you read this here and you listen to Dawkins, you say, you know, he, he may have a point there. Well, in all of this, what we see is the requirement for God to be satisfied. Well, if I could just ask my, God forgive me of my sin. Now, this is the requirement for God to be satisfied. That's the reason that Paul quotes it in Galatians chapter 3. Now, let's go back there to Galatians 3. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. What curse is he talking about? And notice he says, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. So why is this important? In verse uh, 13, he quotes from Deuteronomy 21. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So you may, in your margin, you, if, in your Bible, if you're taking notes, say when you come to these verses, this writes, see Deuteronomy 27 and 28. This is the satisfaction that God requires. Now we know from this, and we know actually what Dawkins is saying is that if, that, if that's all you read, yeah, you can pretty much get a, 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 a very distorted picture of the Old Testament God. I remind you, the Old Testament God is no different from the New Testament God. That's in our minds. So he quotes here, Deuteronomy 27, the last verse, and then we lead into Deuteronomy 28. God promises either the blessings or the cursings, and he says, if you break my law, you're cursed. And what God promised, he carried out. So for sinners that are resistant to repentance 
and resistant to the Prince of Peace that desires through his grace to save you, if you reject that principle of salvation, you're cursed. Paul says you're under the curse. And he goes to great length here in chapter 3, teaching us that the law curses people. We assume that the law of God is, is lofty, and it is, that it's noble, that it's some ethical code summarized in the Ten Commandments, that it's a good system to strive to live by, that if we just give it a good shot, God's going to overlook all of our mistakes. If we fail to obey, God's going to be kind because, you know, he grades on the curve and we really, 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 really tried. No, we didn't. The Hebrews didn't. And the Gentiles didn't. We talked about this last Sunday morning in those first three chapters of the book of Romans. The understanding that Paul gives us there about forgiveness of sins. No, we make this, we conjure that up in our minds. We really, 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 really tried. No, we didn't. We can't there is this great obstacle. Next slide. Now let's talk about the law just for a moment. The law of God reflects all of God's attributes. And they are many. It reflects his morality. It is totally characteristic of who God is. It's not just something he decided within the Trinity to come up with. It is the reflection of God himself. The law of God's not separate from him. You see God, you see the law of God. It requires satisfaction. That's why he gave those words to Moses. That's why Paul wrote them here in Galatians chapter 3. These are demands. And here's the thing. To understand redemption, it is necessary that we understand the law of God's curse. This comes back again to the gravity of sin. Why the incarnation? Why the cradle? Because of the curse. And we can't understand the curse unless we recognize the law of God requires his satisfaction. God can eliminate the law. He substituted himself because he required living to the law. What the law of God requires is contrary to our behavior. We live in the natural world. The law of God is supernatural. We can't live it. We'll drop down to verse 19 here in just a moment. We can't live it. It requires us to do exactly what we don't want to do. It's the opposite of our longings, our cravings, our lusts, and our desires. It's supernatural, not natural. It requires us to do what is against our nature. It requires perfection. And not just how we look perfection. It requires perfection here. It refuses to accept any good intention or any effort as compensation. It accepts no payback. There's no prepayment plan. There is no, it is an unrelenting taskmaster. It shatters our happiness and our peace. Because we know it is not natural for us to live that way in our sins. It requires an eternal penalty for everyone 
It offers no repentance and no forgiveness. There is no mercy in the law of God. And there's no grace. Therefore, there's no hope. But it still requires satisfaction. Next slide. <clears throat> it demands, but it offers no help to achieve what it demands. It provides no strength, no power, no plan, no method to satisfy God. It is in black and white, in tablets of stone, and it's not for debate. And Paul said in verse 11, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God because there's no justification in the law. Because it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now this is an Old Testament quote from the book of Habakkuk. This is not just something that's New Testament. So Dawkins got it all wrong as many, many, many millions of people do. There's nothing in the law. It offers no salvation. Salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. Thankfully, Paul wrote verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Because he became the law's curse, a curse for us. His submission to the law was indispensable to God's blessing for you and I. And then in verse 14 he says that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So the cradle was necessary. The incarnation was necessary so that Jesus would fulfill the demands of God the Father's law in all of its nuances. But not only that, in order to satisfy the demands of the law, it required him to endure its condemnation. That's why he became a curse. So what good is the law then, preacher? Well, look at verse 19. Paul answers that. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of the transgressions to the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. It is a reflection of the character of God, which includes his promises. For if there had been a law given, which could have give, uh, given life, truly righteousness would have been made by the law. If God could have written the law that would save us, he would. But the law is the embodiment of who he is, so it required him. The scriptures confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law is our tutor or our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under its, tutor, its tutelage. For we are all the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The purpose of the law was to produce in the sinner the awareness of God's wrath, the awareness of his judgment, 
the awareness of his punishment and the curse that drives the sinner to Christ so that we might place our faith in him and not in our inability. We don't have the ability to live the law. We are unable to live the law. Next slide. So some wrongly assume that God is the prisoner of his own law because it requires condemnation he's obligated to condemn. But you see, it's God that requires the condemnation which came before the law. So the cradle was necessary because the creator required satisfaction for his law and that could only be satisfied in himself. Theologian R.W. Dale wrote, there can be nothing in the demands of the law and the severity of the law and the condemnation of the law and the death of the law and the curse of the law, which is not a reflection of the perfections of God. Whatever is due to the law is due to the law because it is the law of God, and therefore it's due to God himself. We don't obey the law because it's legal. We obey the law because we love God. And there's a difference. We love God. So, God's law demanded satisfaction. God's honor and his justice occur. In the ancient world, honor was far more important than uh, success, than monies, than profession. Honor, it was considered an honor to die for what you believed in. I'm not sure that many people would do that today. So Christ satisfied God's character because he is God. He, and what we learn is a being who is God and not man, or who is a man and not God, couldn't satisfy his character. You can't have just God and no man or just man and no God because it was necessary for these two to come together in Jesus Christ to deliver us from the curse. A man had to do it and it was the God man. Next slide. One of the great theologians of all time over the past thousand years or so said it is needful but the very same person who is able to make satisfaction be perfect God and perfect man since no one can do it except one who is truly God and no one ought to do it the ought lies with you and I but we can't and no one ought to do it except one that is truly man That's how depraved sinners are. We can't do it. It is supernatural. So Galatians 4, we're not going to read that this morning. We'll pick up on that next Sunday morning. But it teaches that when the time was pregnant, in the fullness of time, Paul continues, in the fullness of time, the God-man was born so that he might become the curse. Cursed is everyone who is nailed to a tree from Deuteronomy chapter 21 so that he may save his people from their sins. The gravity of our sin, our moral failure to be responsible for our sin, our refusal to claim true guilt instead of false guilt, Jesus redeemed us because his death satisfied the necessary requirements and restored the name back to God the Father. The leader of the English Reformation in the 1600s, a man by the name of Thomas Cranmer, wrote this. It pleased our Heavenly Father of his infinite mercy 
without any desert, uh, desert rather, or deserving, to prepare for us the most precious jewels in Christ's body and blood, whereby our ransom was fully paid, the law fulfilled, and his justice fully satisfied. Our ransom was fully paid. Period. End of story. The law was fulfilled. Period. End of story. And his justice fully satisfied. Period. End of story. We bring nothing to our salvation, and we not, cannot claim salvation in any other name but Jesus Christ. Next slide. Swiss theologian Emil Brunner said, all order in the world depends upon the invaluability of his, that is God's honor, upon the certitude that those who rebel against him will be punished. All these curses that we just read back in Deuteronomy 28, God says, if you don't do this, you're going to be punished. And that's the certitude that occurs. Any that rebel, and that's me, that's you. How is forgiveness possible then if punishment is the expression of the divine law and order? And the law is the expression of the will of the lawgiver. God's not capricious. and God didn't say you shouldn't steal just because there's something else that he was trying to make up. It is a reflection of the honesty of God that he wants reflected in the crown of his creation. Sin has caused a break in the world order. A disorder so deep-seated that restitution is necessary and that restitution is the atonement. So again, the cradle is necessary in order that God the Son atone for the sins of you and I on the cross. So how does God satisfy himself? Let's close this out this morning. In Christ alone, we sing this hymn, or sing this chorus from time to time. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God, and helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Not only his wrath, but the law, all those requirements. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Turn to Isaiah 53, and we'll close with this this morning. We're very familiar with Isaiah 53, or should be. But there's a portion of Isaiah 53 that we don't read very often at Christmas time, and should, or Easter time. <clears throat> Verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge... My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear the iniqu their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a great por a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil of the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for those transgressors. The Bible doesn't teach that God was required to satisfy anyone else but himself. And because he satisfied himself in the person of his son, you and I have had the curse removed. Next slide. Out of the anguish of his soul, we just read... 
He shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So satisfaction for God means that satisfaction could only and can only be accomplished by himself. The law he must conform to. He must satisfy himself. Is the law within his own being. No law that we place on him, no demands that we place on him, no demands that Satan places on him. He places the demand on himself. Within the Trinity, there is a holy intolerance. Yes, God's intolerant of things, and we should be too. There is a holy intolerance of idolatry, immorality, and injustice. These act to trigger his response of anger and indignation, yet never without reason. If evil did not provoke him to anger, he would not be God. If you don't remember anything else this morning, if evil did not provoke him to anger, he wouldn't be God. Yahweh pledged to Israel... He said, I'm going to pour out my vengeance on you. Saw that in Deuteronomy. It's carried all the way through the major and minor prophets. And Ezekiel 7 is found. He says, I will kalah. I will end. I will spend. I will pour out my anger. And only when God's anger is satisfied does it end. When Jesus hung on the cross, and he, in John's gospel, next slide, I think I've got that up here. In John's gospel, he poured out his anger on the Lamb of God. Two times in the New Testament, we find this. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. God said, Kalah, I have poured out my anger. Everything that has been withheld for years because men and women and boys and girls cannot live my holy law. And Jesus said, it's finished. He bowed his head. He gave up his spirit. All of this in the Greek is one word. Tetelestia. One word. It is finished. In Revelation 16, there the Bible says, after the pouring out of all of the plagues, all of the curses, if you please, during tribulation. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And carbon dioxide rained down on the earth. Doesn't say that. And a loud voice came out of the sanctuary from the throne saying, It is done. Christ sufficiently paid for the sins of those that know him as Savior, for the sins of the world. But for those that do not claim him, there will come a time when he says, it is done. His holiness, his love, his mercy, his wrath, his grace, his righteousness require satisfaction. All of them. All of them. Most of us think that God's nature can be stated in a single word. Oh, God's love. Oh, God's goodness. Oh, God's merciful. Oh, my God's gracious. But it can't. God is not that way. He's not just love. He's not just grace. He's not just mercy. He's not just wrath. He's not just anger. God is cannot be separate. He is indivisible. 
And so when we speak of one attribute of God, oh, I love God because he's so loving, we have to remember that there are millions of other attributes that complement him. And each of those attributes require satisfaction because that's who he is. And they contribute to our forgiveness. From the cradle to the cross, God makes known in Christ his holiness, his love, his mercy. And the cross is the only place where the loving, forgiving, merciful God is revealed in such a way that we perceive of his holy demands and his love. Before the start of World War I, the widely held claims and views about God and human progress. There they preached a God whose sole purpose was to promote and crown human development. Sound familiar? P.T. Forsyth is a Scottish theologian. Actually was in World War I and then came out. He observed the war's revelation of the awful and desperate nature of evil. And he exploded these optimistic views and raised the question about the goodness of God to full force. He wrote a book entitled The Justification of God while World War I was killing over 10 million and wounding 20 million people around the world. He saw, having experienced a world catastrophe and judgment of the first rank like the war, as still in the hand and service of God. He wrote another book entitled The Cruciality of the Cross, and he said this, Christ's first concern and revelation was not simply the forgiving love of God, but the holiness of such love. Without a holy God, there would be no problem of atonement. It is the holiness of God's love that necessitates the atoning cross. And this inevitably leads to the question, how can God save us and satisfy himself? He sacrificed, indeed, he substituted himself in order to secure our salvation from sins. What a God. This Christmas, remember, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son. We could never say it, but we'll never be able to say it enough in eternity. But Father, we do love you because you first loved us. You revealed yourself through your word. You revealed yourself through the law and the law was to bring us to Christ. I thank you, Father, that you have, through the Spirit of God, brought many here this morning to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I do pray if there are those that don't know you as Savior today, that they would be reminded that, that the curse for our disobedience was paid by Jesus Christ. And it's ours by faith in him. Have your sweet will, your divine way in the remainder of the service today. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. So we're going to sing a closing hymn this morning. <clears throat> what number, Brother Mike? 117. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord as Savior... We can't save you, which is good news. You, you don't want a mortal saving you. But the God-man Jesus Christ can, and he will. He took the curse for you, took the curse for me. So as we sing, if you make your way out of the pew, come to the front this morning, we'll be glad to take you to a private prayer room and bring you to the Lord Jesus, who alone can save. If you're here today and the Lord may be leading you into this, uh, um, into this church, 
by perhaps you need to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. We encourage you to make that decision this day as well. If you're here today as a child of God, never forget this. Never. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And thank him for the cradle that led to the cross.